Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Happy New Year, Intimates. It's 2020. Probably going to be known as the year where partying like it's 2020 means turning it around 10 so you feel rested. Year of hindsight? No? Uh, you're right, it wasn't funny anyway. I've, I've always found... Um, setting new year's resolutions to be somewhat embarrassing anyway people have this tendency to commit really intensely to things that are very hard really far off in the future and then the closer they get to those things the less they feel committed to actually following through with them so do your best to set yourself reasonable resolutions if you're going to do them just my two cents all right let's talk about new year's it's kind of a time of new beginnings, and that actually ties in with our topic today because we're going to be talking about imposter syndrome. It's one of those things which many of us, myself included, suffers from, especially when starting something new, but even sometimes after many years. Someone once said to me, imposter syndrome is colonialism, and it got a little easier to sort of take off the sweater vest that is that imposter syndrome. I personally cope by reminding myself that people I respect chose for me to be in positions I am, and since I respect them, I respect their opinion of what they saw in me. Which brings us to today, where I made a podcast for all of 2019 and some of 2018, every week for you folks. And here we are today, talking with Yannis Gorstengard about colonialism, moving forward, and grad school. Three related topics. Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with my guest, Yannis Gorstengard. Yana is a master's student at University of Ottawa, or as I like to call it, ooh. Nice. Thank you. Um, she's doing a thesis on <laughs> arts programs for women on probation and parole. And yeah, we're going to be talking today about moving grad school and colonialism and how all of that sort of interacts in our relationships with ourselves. So Yana, you moved. Well, firstly, welcome. Thank you. And secondly, you moved a huge distance for grad school. I'm curious how I, that impacted your way of like moving through the world and like just living and taking care of yourself. Um, yeah. So I moved from Vancouver um, with my, my husband um, to uh, I right now I live in Gatineau, Quebec, um, specifically in a little cute neighborhood called Aylmer. Um, which I didn't know existed until we got the apartment. Um, 
uh, we're here cause it's cheap. Um, and Ottawa is ridiculously expensive. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's about 2,700 miles ish, give or take from Vancouver. Um, and we drove, uh, my, my father-in-law drove us across the country. It took nine days. Wow. Um, yeah, with all of our stuff packed into a tiny U-Haul after we had sold probably about 80% of our apartment. That is many days and many percents to sell. It, it was a lot. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it definitely, definitely changed me as a person. First of all, I had never seen Canada beyond Saskatchewan. Wow. Uh, so to do that journey was really exciting. Um, and it was really fun and we camped the whole way, which was also interesting. Um, mostly because it was raining for the second half of our trip. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the summer perfect camping weather that we were hoping for. Um, <laughs> but it really, uh, I think the move, it didn't feel real until we got here. And then it was mm -hmm. like, all of a sudden I was like, oh, I don't have a support system. Um, except right. for my, for, except for my partner. Mm -hmm. Um, and all of my friends are literally thousands of miles away. Uh, and this is really scary. And what have I gotten myself into? Mm -hmm. uh, I've since adjusted. I'm making friends in my, my master's program. They are incredible people and they do incredible work. Um, but yeah, it is, uh, and we're all from different places in, in Canada. Like nobody, a couple people are from Ontario and they went to the same school. Uh, like they went to U Ottawa to do their BA and now mm -hmm. they're doing their masters at U Ottawa. But a lot of us are just like from different parts of the country and we're like, what are we doing here? Um, so is there's like grad, kind of a, is that just grad school in general being like, what are we doing here? <laughs> oh fuck. Is it ever? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I frequently just like look at myself in the mirror some days and go, why did I do this? What have I done? Um, thank God I don't have to pay for this. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah, grad school is just looking in the mirror and just going, why? Why did I do this to myself? I'm so tired. Um, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like um, you're parenting your thesis. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what it is. Well, when I get to do when I get to do my own research, which is very rare, mm -hmm. um, because grad school is a lot of coursework, and then um, kind of making time for your thesis, kind of, sort of. <laughs> so, right on top of grading and answering emails and asking the government for money constantly. Um, right. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, that sounds like a blast <laughs> constantly <laughs> asking mean, yourself what am i doing here and I being like make it sound so dire but like there are some <laughs> yeah there are just some days some days uh think, most of the time it's great i mean hopefully so. at the end of it you end up with something you're really proud of and you're empowered to understand how all of these convoluted systems work yeah that's my hope too and i think it's gonna be Hopefully one day you make change from that understanding. Oh my God. Do I ever hope so? Cause right now it just feels like writing into a vacuum. Right. Yeah. So how would you say grad school impacted your self-confidence? 
Um, I thought that I was really smart. <laughs> then I read, <laughs> I did some of the readings for one of my classes and went, oh, no, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Um, so the imposter syndrome was really real. And then everyone else just like, yeah, I got it. I get it. And I'm like, what? How many of you are lying? Like, I just need right. to know. I just need to um, know for a friend. I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah. How many, how many of the 15 of you around this table are absolute liars? Um, but like, yeah, it just, my, the first couple of weeks, I think it just, my self-confidence just really plummeted. Um, it was just really, it was a lot of like, did I make a huge mistake? Am I actually smart enough to be here? Was that letter a joke? Um, mm. is this just a big practical joke that's being pulled on me that I don't know about? Um, and I realized we held a couple of sessions just with like as grad students. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that everybody felt that way and nobody wanted to talk about it. Great. Um, yeah. Which was, I was like, Oh, I'm not alone. <laughs> Thank God. Um, yeah, there were a lot of people who were like, I feel so out of my depth. Like, it's just ridiculous. And it was even like, it was, it wasn't just master students. It was PhD students too. Mm -hmm. Um, people were, who were like two years into their PhD who were just like, I have no idea what's happening or what I'm doing. Wow. And I'm like, Oh good. It doesn't go away. That's comforting. <laughs> that also suggests that people who are actually doctors of this content are similarly affected by like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Yeah. Which is somehow less reassuring than I thought it would be. Yeah. Um, it's not super comforting. <laughs> um, but like when you ask them about their specific area, mm -hmm. um, they will just like run you over with knowledge. Right. Um, and it's, it's really incredible, um, to, to experience that. And then to watch them kind of blossom into their own confidence and be like, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. And you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm absolutely fascinated. Right. Um, yeah. So in that way, it's, it's really good. Um, and everyone's really supportive from, from what I've experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, everyone's really friendly. I don't know if that varies from school to school or if it, that's just like the grad school struggle is just like, you got this mm -hmm. as you tiredly leave the office after like six hours of reading. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's a struggle. Uh, but that's cool. <laughs> yeah. I guess there's not much more to say about grad school than that. Yeah. I'm enjoying it, but it's a struggle and that's okay. It's okay. Awesome. So I'm curious to talk more about, um, your relationship with yourself and like how that looked before you moved after you moved and then like with grad school, just kind of like where you're at with yourself. Um, I think I'm in, I think I'm in a really good place. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like when I was, when I was finishing my BA and I knew that I had gotten into this program, um, it was a lot of anxiety and it was a lot of just waiting for waiting to just be there, mm -hmm. um, and waiting to be like, Oh, I'm going to be like this amazing student. And I'm going to be like this amazing person. I'm going to be like this whole new person. Um, it was a lot of expectation. And then when I got here, I just threw it all away <laughs> um, because, 
<laughs> it's just, uh, it's bullshit and it's exhausting. And, right. uh, also I'm 33 years old and I just don't have time for that shit anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm tired. <laughs> if you don't like me, that's not my problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm fun. I, I anyway. wish I were, I wish I were there. I'm not quite to the, if you don't like me, that's not my problem. I'm still like, you don't yeah. like me. That is my problem. Um, I mean, I have days like that, especially okay. when I'm presenting. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, you don't like me. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. I, I must have um, done something. Yeah. 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 What did I say? Was it my slides? Were they, were they bad? That's the academic version of, Oh no, you don't like me. Um, <laughs> were my slides bad? Um, was it my slides? Um, was it the incessant star wipes or the lack of star wipes? Um, <laughs> uh, too much cowbell? Not enough cowbell? Do you have a fever? You can only be cured with more cowbell. Oh my god! Oh. Um, but yeah, it was just like I just decided that I was just gonna be be who I am. And that was, that was enough. Um, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, I'm in a good place. I mean, it's like, I definitely, I still struggle with things like, um, just like loneliness in general, um, and not having that kind of support system, but, um, mm-hmm. I'm finding that I can do a lot more things on my own. And I feel good about that. That's great. Um, yeah. I've been trying to get into so, the habit of seeing like self-care time where I'm investing time in myself as productive time instead of seeing it as non-productive as, leisure time. Yeah. And so, um, I did this, I did this program, um, with a, with a friend it was a, it was like a fitness program and like a mindful, because I, like, I have problems with, um, I've always had problems with emotional eating. Mm. Um, which has always been a struggle for me. So I did this program with this friend and I felt really great. Um, I was like planning, I was like meal planning and doing all those responsible adult things. Um, and all of a sudden taking time for myself, even just going to the gym or like going for a walk, Mm. it's not a chore anymore. Um, Mm. it's, it's valuable time with me and my music and my brain. And I can, if I'm having a bad day, I can just let my brain spin out mm-hmm. like while I run on the treadmill or lift weights or something like that. And it's totally mm-hmm. fine. I'm allowed to do that because it's my time. Yeah. I appreciate um, that. And it's like the healthiest time to let your brain spin out when you're doing physical activity. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but it like that changed, that changed things for me big time. Um, like I, I feel, I feel so much better. I'm still carrying on. Like I've left, I've finished the program, but I'm still carrying it on on my own. Um, and it's just self-care has just become a habit instead of something. It's like, Oh God, I have to do this. Okay. Like let's do it. Definitely. I've gone yeah. through similar changes myself. Although in terms of my emotional eating, I definitely am not quite there yet. I, um, after getting, an IBSC diagnosis, it's been a lot harder to, I'll just be vulnerable for a second. So for context, there are currently four bags of rice cakes and four bags of chips that are low FODMAP, 
um, that are on top of my fridge right now. And like, I have so many because I will eat like a bag of either at a time. And I tend to do that when I'm really stressed. I definitely have emotional eating stuff that I haven't fully worked through, but you know, you do what you can still in counseling. There are good days and bad days. Yeah. Um, but, and like the person that I was working with said, like, it's just a day. Yeah. It's just a day or it's a couple of days or even if it's a week, like it doesn't, it's okay. Yeah. It doesn't have you to can own say, you. Yeah. You can just say like, I'll just, I can just get back on track whenever this is over. Yeah. So, totally. Yeah. It was, it was a really healthy way of looking at, um, just physical health in general mm-hmm. because the person I was working with did not be- like, doesn't believe in like keto crash diets, mm-hmm. <laughs> anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really nice to work with somebody who was so incredibly body positive that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? We were talking about, right, being in a better headspace emotionally. And then I was like, oh, I'm still struggling with emotional eating. Um, right. Oh, so it's exacerbated by the fact that if I, if I get hungry for too long, it reminds me of a really dark period in my life after a partner tried to kill herself where I wasn't mm-hmm. eating properly because I just couldn't yeah. emotionally, like, even so I like I couldn't take care of myself so I wasn't eating so I like made this association of being really hungry with that and when I get really stressed my body emulates conditions of being really hungry so there's like this really nasty downward spiral that I can get into so I've been working really hard on not using food to cope and practicing mindfulness and trying to like sit with the feelings and sit in my body and not running from my body and dissociating like uh, so many folks do that's the hardest part. Um, like I can't, yeah. I, I can't do like meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, because if I'm not moving, sitting with my brain is the scariest thing I can possibly imagine. Mm. Um, because I like, I have, it's, it's diagnosed and it's, I've worked through it, but I have borderline personality disorder and I have bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so some days, even if it's a good day, uh, either one or both of them, um, will sneak up on me. Um, and so things like meditation and yoga, they create a lot of anxiety in me. Mm. Um, which is why I've turned to things like running and weightlifting, um, Mm -hmm. because they kind of help, uh, I can work through that stuff and it's easier to work through something when you're like violently lifting a weight. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) There are also lots of ways to practice mindfulness and concentration while you are violently lifting weights or running. And there are lots of ways to really like focus on what you're doing and really feel in your body um, without having to be quote unquote silent per se. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. Sorry, go ahead. I learned a lot of those techniques um, in acting school. Um, Hmm. Like in acting school, we called it being present. Um, and it was just for, it started out with, you just had to stand and feel things. Um, I remember the first class I was like, nope, I'm out. I'm not doing this. This is bullshit. (laughs) I hate it. Um, these are all very scary. And then, uh, a couple classes later I was just like, okay, I can just, I can, I can sit with this for about 15 minutes. Um, but the teacher would kind of allow us to, if we wanted to just move around. Right. Um, so some people would sit 
in complete silence. And some people like me would just pace. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was fine. It was just a way for us to deal with, with anxiety and excess emotion and excess energy. Um, so I've kind of always been like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, definitely not a meditation person. Yeah. I can respect that. Yeah. I would love to be. Right. But sometimes like being neuroatypical makes it very hard to be. Yeah. That's true for pretty much anyone with generalized anxiety disorder, which is really kind of a cruel joke. Actually, I shouldn't make a broad sweeping statement like that because it's obviously going to vary person to person. Um, But what I've typically heard anxious folks say is that they're usually in one of two camps. There are people like myself who have been anxious who are like, wow, I feel much less anxious when I practice mindfulness. Then there are people that I know who have a lot more anxiety that are just like, nope, I start practicing mindfulness and like my brain turns on me. Oh yeah. 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 And that's like, I, I, that's how I feel with meditation and yoga is my brain is just kind of like, Hey, remember this thing you did eight years ago? Let's think about that for like an hour and a half. And you're like, Sorry, what I'm laughing because this is so relatable. Oh no, it's so funny. Like it, sometimes it will make me laugh, but it's like, it's like, remember this thing? And you're like, oh, I forgot about that. And your brain's like, yeah, no, I didn't. Right. I remember every detail. Let's right. replay it. It's like, are you sure you, you shouldn't have apologized to that person? Cause I still think it was a mistake. And you're like, God oh, damn it, brain. It's just this horrific clip show. <laughs> like I hate, yeah. I hate it. Yeah. I can't, I can't sit in silence. I have to aggressively lift weights and mm-hmm. listen to a podcast. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's legit. <laughs> um, so that's a perfect segue into imposter syndrome. <laughs> talking Ooh. about, talking yeah. about anxiety, um, and mm-hmm. grad school imposter mm-hmm. syndrome you mentioned it earlier of just like not feeling yeah. like like wow like is this just a joke like how did yeah how did i even get to here and like why did people oh. trust me with this task like how could i ever like it's so overwhelming in the scope especially a thesis yeah one it's um i i believe i don't know if i'm i, I think i'm right um i think i'm the first woman in my family to go to graduate school wow um, and so that's that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, and I want to do a PhD. So I will be the first woman in my family to have a PhD. That's Um, great. Yeah. And I was talking to my mom last night just via text. And I said, I was like, Oh, I was like, Oh, I've like, I'm, I'm applying for this scholarship and I've done all this. And like, I got an A, I got my first A plus on a graduate paper on Wednesday and I cried on the bus home. Um, because it feels, it feels really good. And I worked really hard and I, I deserve that a plus. Um, that was when I kind of started to quash my imposter syndrome was literally on Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) So we're, we're working through it. Um, but I said to my mom, I was like, I was like, yeah, I've done all these things. And she's like, I'm so proud of you. And she's like, she's like, I don't, I don't know how you got to be so smart. And I went, I don't know either. LOL. And then she went, yeah. roasted i love the the rapport you have with your mom and like the way the two of you communicate is hilarious oh. and awesome like i see where you get all that like scathing sarcasm from oh yeah that woman is just oh wow <laughs> she has 
she has burned me so like <laughs> she'll tag me in memes and i'm just like what the fuck did i ever do to you <laughs> who are you she's mom like, she's like try everything and i'm like oh thank you that's really nice but then when I tag her in one meme that makes fun of her, she's like, uh, I think I need to go to therapy. And I'm like, really? Yeah. She's fantastic. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So when we talk about imposter syndrome in the context of grad school, firstly, I'm so mm -hmm. happy to hear. I'm so happy to hear that you're managing to work through all of <laughs> or at least part of um, your imposter syndrome, but also it sort of happens in this context of like gr of grading and judgment and being evaluated to be good enough to be where you are. It's very like yeah. externally focused and like wanting validation from peers. Yeah. And there's something very hierarchical about it where it's not necessarily like you're specifically valued for the contributions that you can make. Yeah. You're sort of evaluated against peers that almost aren't your peers yet yeah it's like you're you're sort of in in training almost like a <laughs> like an intern and you're being evaluated against the like the star of the show yep for sure and it's like well of course i of course when people see me perform they're like that's the intern because i am the intern <laughs> like <laughs> i am the student i am not the doctor yeah yeah. So there's there's definitely this sense of hierarchy and like very academic, very almost elitist where like the value is placed on being at that goal line, at that ever advancing goal line. And like there's something to be said for like the benefit and of drive and like pushing yourself to be a little better. And there's also something to be said with being able to accept where you are in like a really well, healthy kind of way so that you're able to do your best work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're almost expected to like perform like this incredible person on the first day. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's really intimidating. I actually, I have a, a prof. She runs the, uh, our research seminar class. Mm -hmm. She is just the most jovial, incredible French Canadian, woman I have ever met in my life. She has way too much energy for eight 30 in the morning. And that's why I love her. <laughs> um, <laughs> but she, she really, um, she goes around the room to everybody and talks to them about their project and where they are at their project. Um, and really makes the time to, to make one-on-one -on -one connections with everybody, even though there's like, sometimes there's 30 of us because we, wow. we're a big cohort. There's 33 of us, I think but we're mm -hmm. split into different classes mm -hmm. or different sections. Um, so every, I think it's four weeks, we have one class with the 33 of us and she will go around to 33 people. It doesn't matter how long it takes. Um, and we'll talk to them about their project, talk to them about their anxieties around their project, um, and really invite a dialogue. And so that's what has really helped me to be like, okay, I'm not the only person who's freaking out. I'm not mm -hmm. the only person who's struggling with this particular part of my project. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're all in the same, like we're all in the same boat basically. Right. Um, so having people like that around is so beneficial as opposed to um, 
somebody who is just constantly evaluating you. Right. Uh, and not encouraging you. So yeah, that's a totally different mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just, she's really fostered this environment of, uh, everyone feels comfortable to share. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's been really, it's my favorite class. <laughs> even, even though it's at eight thirty in the morning, but that's fine. Wow. You say that like, that's actually fine and it is not fine. It's not fine. I have to get up at six. <laughs> that I'm is so mad every day. Way too early. Way too early. All all the graduates' classes are at, at like at eight thirty, oh, and it's like, why, why do you do, do this? We're you. already tired. Yeah, that like, sucks. Yeah, we're already just old people. <laughs> we don't need eight thirty. How about two p.m.? How about that? <laughs> You're like we have been aged by graduate school and academia. Yeah, in two months. <laughs> I got 11 new gray hairs in two months. Wow, that's a lot of new gray hairs. Yeah. I'm going to be a gray 35-year-old being like, back in my day. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> You're like, then I, then I definitely won't have imposter syndrome. Yeah, to a bunch of 18-year-olds, yeah. <laughs> yeah he's like, I'm twice your age. Sunny to the class I'm TAing for. Oh, fantastic! Solid. Can't wait. You could definitely like dye your hair crazy fun shades too, um, because yeah, when when it's gray, no you don't have. That's right. You don't have to worry about the pigments. You can just go like purple or like bright yep. fuchsia. Oh, I can't wait. There's a prophet Carlton who has like rainbow colored hair. Amazing. She's like my ideal person. She looks fun just from her picture. I mean, rainbow colored hair says it all. Yeah. Super fun. So talking about imposter syndrome, um, I heard someone at Stratagem Con um, when I was presenting there, they shared um, this idea that imposter syndrome is colonialism. Mm. And if you think about those ideas being all related and to some degree, like rightly or wrongly conflated, it mm. almost makes it easier to kind of think about elitism, colonialism, and imposter syndrome all in the same breath and being like, I have value to contribute where I am. Oh, yeah. And, even, you know, even if other people in your organization say you're working in an organization and they trivialize you based on gender or they trivialize you based on orientation or race and mm-hmm. you really feel like no one listens to you, like you have mm-hmm. that value whether they see it or not. Yeah. But it is very hard to convince myself of that, so... I will stop preaching. (laughs) So talking about, sorry, go, sorry, go on. It sounds like you had a comment. No, I just, I've never, I've never looked at it like that before. And that's just like, it's so real. Um, especially, especially in academia where it's generally a white male dominated space. Yeah. Um, and then I look at my cohort, which is mostly women. Mm hmm. Um, and how that landscape is kind of changing slowly. I'm not sure what it's like in other departments, um, especially in the social sciences, but I know criminology, like I'm, I mostly look around the table and I, I mostly see women. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't see like at conferences and stuff. I don't see a lot of women of color. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't see a lot of indigenous women, Mm-hmm. But I'm really hoping that that's going to change. Um, I, I really hope that that changes um, because those voices are, are so valuable. They're so valuable in academia. 
Um, it's it's really hard because in predominantly white spaces, at least in in my experience as a person of color, um, and I obviously can't speak for women of color, um, but as a non-binary human of color, I just find that you can't just invite folks of color into white spaces without making those white spaces safe for them first. Yeah. So it's really easy to be like, wow, we don't have any quote unquote diversity or we don't have any representation. People often like yeah. to use the word um, inclusion, which to me has always kind of sounded like, oh, it's so thoughtful of you to include us <laughs> as, oh. opposed, as opposed to this idea of like equity or I mean, even diversity is better, although. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's really challenging. They now have this diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, which are like, like, they tend to all be spoken about in the same breath. And it's just like, I don't know, it's a, it's a challenge. Like fundamentally, it's not that the people, like, it's not like folks of color don't have interest or that folks of color um, aren't like attending. There may be mm -hmm. additional barriers. There may be cost barriers. There may be like socioeconomic reasons. There may be cultural exactly. reasons in terms of valuing um, certain mm -hmm. degree programs or topics like there are a lot yeah. of reasons for sure um, but it's not like there isn't one you know what I mean yeah and like my my answer to that would be why wouldn't you um, you could offer more scholarships sure um, god you can make tuition cheaper yeah there, there are definitely interventions that can happen. Like there are ways of yeah. changing it, but the additional thing to recognize is it it's never strictly a money thing, even if money is the no, biggest thing. That's true. Yeah. And, and, and I know that's not what you were saying at all either. I just, I just wanted to bring up that idea that often people talk about like, huh, like a perfect example would be um, the anti-racism work I'm trying to do at Metro Vancouver mm -hmm. kink. Um, and it's always easiest to, to bitch out your own community, I guess. Uh, <laughs> oh, is but, it ever? Oh, is it ever? Um, and <laughs> I often make it sound worse than it actually is because yeah. MVK has been really excellent in one, supporting me in all of the anti-racism initiatives that I've tried to spearhead. Like they've been, as soon as I've suggested something, they've essentially all been like, yes, do the thing how can we support you? Like, what do you need? Um, when right. I started, which is, which is great. Like that's, that is what allyship looks like is it looks like not trying to do things for other people, but empowering the people, um, to do things for themselves a lot of the time. Yes. Yeah. And that's sort of what's been happening at MBK. The other issue is I'm the only person of color on the board. Um, and Ooh. it's right. And I'm also fairly light skinned. So as much as you know, I'm obviously not white. I still have a lot of light skin privilege. And there's this right. idea that's sort of been percolating in my head about like the vanguard and the way that spaces slowly change culturally. You were talking about criminology with it tending to be a whole bunch of old white dudes um, yeah. and how that's changing. For me, it's even when I think about like queer representation, it tends to be white gay men. Um, when, I, yeah. when we think of what the mainstream sees as queer um, representation yeah. when they think about quote unquote the gays um, that's typically what they think yeah. about um, and for me at MBK it feels like um, wow that that analogy really worked out in terms of like gender orientation and race I was not planning that that just happened um, but for me at MBK it looks like you know the lightest skinned um, not maybe not the lightest skinned but one of the lighter skinned mixed race people um, yeah. being 
the representative, you know, like the not quite not quite token, but um, the sort of um, unfortunately now representative or um, ambassador almost for folks of color. And I feel like in these emerging in these in these spaces where there's like emerging diversity, it tends to be the most privileged people that are marginalized that get space to talk first. Yeah. As you would expect. Yeah. So hopefully in criminology, that's that's what you see, that you start seeing more and more white women. And then as the spaces become less violent or inhospitable for folks of color, um, because yeah. you're going to start having people that have some understanding of oppression, that have some understanding of discrimination and that have done probably more reading about it. Oh, um, yeah, Absolutely. Right. Especially um, when you start like, talking about queer folks, it's like, yeah, they've almost certainly done their reading. Um, and, and maybe yeah. that's a broad oversimplification because I know that white queer communities have their issues with racism, too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, um, fundamentally, it's it's looking up if you're seeing cohorts where that are more more diverse than the teachers. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Not that I'm like, you know, racism solved, call it a day. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> just like, well, we're done with that. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, everything's uh -oh. getting better. We don't need to worry about all the people being shot to death. Yeah. yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Sorry, that got um, dark. <laughs> that got, yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, watching watching the space, the, the spaces shift, um, particularly from when I first started my degree, which was like, 11 years ago, um, has really been incredible. And then watching, um, how many more professors are including non-white authors, um, mm. as mandatory reading in criminology. There aren't enough. Uh, they don't include enough. There are plenty out there, but they, they don't put them in. Um, that sucks. yeah. And there should be a lot more of them. And then I, uh, Talking about doing reading, um, I only started doing reading on queer theory when I was in my third year. Really? Uh, really? Yeah. I had no idea what it was. Um, I had never been exposed to it before, um, even as somebody who identifies as queer. Had wow. never. Yeah. So that was a big... <laughs> That was a big like, oh, wow. Oh, there's like all this literature that, ex that exists that nobody told me about forever. And I was kind of mad about it, but that's fine. <laughs> You're like, I'm um, not crying. You're crying. But I, yeah, just watching the landscape change, even in the like 11 or 12 years that I've been involved in it has been, has been really great. And I'm really hopeful for the future, especially of criminology, um, because we have so much more activist kind of engagement. Um, mm. and there's kind of been that, uh, I don't want to, radicalization is the wrong word. Mm. Um, definitely the wrong word. Um, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Cause that can get taken out of context pretty fast. Um, but, and, and when things get recorded and put on podcasts, someone will look back in five years and be like, she's talking about radicalization. <laughs> Oh my God. No. Um, when things, things get more critical. Right. Um, and we, we look at institutions like prisons and policing and how those institutions affect communities of color. Mm. Um, 
queer people, trans folks. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I just, I'm, I've, I've watched the landscape go from just learning about like Jeremy Bentham and the Panopticon to learning about like radical feminist criminology. What a shift that is. Yeah. And I, I don't mean, I don't mean like radical feminist in like, uh, kind of the, what is it like the social justice arena where rad femmes are trans exclusionary. Yeah. Like, I just, it's like, yeah. Like feminist criminologists are like, we don't want to put up with this bullshit anymore. That's the kind of radical that I'm, that I'm talking about. Right. Like people who actually want to see real change in systems in the world rather than people who are radical in being like super far left, like Marxist feminists that might get described as radical in the current meta or people who are trans exclusionary feminists. Like there are definitely forms of radical feminism for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. But yeah, the, the kind that I'm talking about is just like, it's considered radical by criminologists, I guess that's what, yeah. Got you. It's, because it's, it's not it's not conservative. It's not concerned with protecting police. It's not concerned with protecting the system. It's concerned with dismantling it. Right. And I imagine that comes from a place of protecting people in society. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and finding... especially people who are vulnerable. Yes. I really appreciate yeah. that. So essentially yeah. finding a way rather than protecting the system itself or protecting people that just work in the system, trying to find a balance of protecting all people in society, but especially focused on marginalized and disempowered groups. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. So it's, it's almost not that it's not focused on police or the system in that it like, doesn't care about them at all. It's more just that they've been, (laughs) they've been definitely cared about and talked about a lot. And it's far more interesting to ask the questions that haven't been asked yet. Yeah. Around like we care about them in, in a different way. Sure. Sure. It's yeah. it's more like why are they in these situations that are incredibly dangerous when you can send someone say better equipped, like maybe someone doing conflict resolution. Exactly. Yeah. So more finding alternatives to putting people with guns in really difficult situations that they're not adequately trained to resolve without using those guns. Yeah. And not- looking at the fact that police officers are not uniformly trained across jurisdictions. Right. And um, I wanted, I wanted to also mention not that police officers are not trained in doing things other than shooting. Cause obviously they do receive a lot of different kinds of training. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to throw that piece in there. Yeah. Yeah, no, they do. Um, I, I don't know how long their conflict, conflict resolution training is. Right. Um, yes but I don't think it's as long as their gun training. Yeah. And, and that says a lot. And I honestly feel yeah. like people who are, that's a, that's a systemic failure. I think it's a, um, and that's something that we, I think we really need to look at as criminologists and just like as a society in general, I don't, uh, policing the way it stands now does not work. Mm-hmm. Um, it is extraordinarily toxic and it, it destroys communities, um, especially marginalized communities. Um, and oftentimes they ignore those who are the most vulnerable. I mean, if you, if you even look at, um, the, 
like missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, the women who lost their lives to Robert Picton. I mean, those women just went uncared for by the police for God, 20 odd years. It's, it's Um, just, it's so like incredible to me that the police could ignore like that volume of repeat offense and not even suspect like, Oh, there's just a murderer. Like there's literally a serial killer that's going out and murdering with, an MO that's continuing to yeah. target, you know, sex workers like the, I don't know. It just, it, it blows my mind. There was a, um, there was a serial killer who started in like 1965. Um, his name was Gilbert Paul Jordan and he would abduct indigenous women and make them, um, basically subject them to alcohol poisoning while he watched, Um, and the VPD would find bodies and literally go, Oh, we have another Jordan victim here and then not do anything about it. I don't even know what to say. It's, it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And, um, uh, I just, my critiques of police are just so, uh, definitely not unfounded. And I know that a lot of people will agree with me on them, um, mm-hmm. There needs to be a complete overhaul to the entire system, mm-hmm. um, especially the way they police uh, marginalized and indigenous communities, um, and, because it's and, not working. And right, and not just for the human cost, just for anyone conservative no. who may have somehow made it this far in the conversation. Good for you, friend. Um, oh, also for the cost, like the financial cost. It's so expensive to do policing and incarceration wrong. And I think we've been doing it in a way that is fundamentally prioritizing harming people because we, we judge them to deserve being harmed by us. And that's expensive. It is an expensive and fundamentally bigoted position. Yeah. And it's a, it's a hard system to dismantle too, because it's so a, it's so patriarchal. Um, and it's so, we're so caught up in the hero narrative Mm -hmm. of the police officer, Mm -hmm. especially post nine 11. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, the entire blue lives matter horse shit. I'm going to say that. Yep. Um, yeah. cause it is, it absolutely is. It's like, um, they've never not mattered. It's never been no. that people thought blue lives didn't matter. In fact, we prioritize yeah. blue lives so much they can literally get away with murder and continue doing their jobs without being fired. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, the whole system just needs to go, but it's, it's, it's a process of the police recognizing their own toxicity and beginning to dismantle it um, and From build something better. And, 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 and are they going to do that? Probably not. Right. However, because it, it works air quotes. Um, but... <laughs> right. Well, and, and I mean, a lot of organizations that are highly conservative or come from conservative traditions are going to be very slow to want to change. But I think ultimately the, the best case solution is to see it transition, is to work on it by saying, like, can we substitute something for this one piece that is shown to be equally as effective or better? And just yes. go piece by piece and just, you know, you chip away at it. Yeah. At least that's been my understanding of, of like, the only way we're going to get any traction on on making it a less yeah. violent, less racist system. Yeah. And that's where I think that you said, like, um, bringing in conflict mediators, um, especially if they're from that community. I mean, who better to solve a problem 
than somebody who lives in that community. Definitely. Uh, uh, yeah, I think I think that's a great place to start. Like, um, I feel like police should be the escalation that mediators call. Like, I feel like people yeah. almost shouldn't, like, almost shouldn't call police. And I think we should just have people that are more specifically trained in conflict resolution that are, <clears throat> you know, honestly, that don't have guns and that yeah. and that fundamentally are very good at problem solving. I'm not saying we should necessarily send in the counselors, but I'm like halfway to saying that, especially if you're getting a call that you think is a domestic disturbance and yeah. you think you're going to be sending officers into a potentially violent domestic disturbance situation. It's like, cool, if you need to send in an officer with a gun so that everyone feels safe, you can do that. But make sure that person yeah. does not speak, you know, unless spoken to, essentially. Like, fundamentally, yeah. that should be a de-escalation situation for people who are trained in resolving domestic disputes in nonviolent ways, without the show Absolutely. of force, without guns. Yeah. And, like, I, I personally... I. Other people might know them. I don't know anyone who has ever felt safe around a gun mm. or someone holding a gun, mm -hmm. even if they're protecting them, quote unquote. Um, Except possibly they, the person literally holding it. Yeah. I think that's the only person who feels safe in that scenario. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there, there are just better ways of, of, I almost said policing communities, but uh, managing communities mm -hmm. than bringing in this white hetero patriarchal system that is so hell bent on violence. Um, and there are plenty yeah. of examples of policing in the world and granted they're in different cultures and different cultures can't be taken out of context, but, mm -hmm. um, even the English system, you know, you have folks that literally do policing without guns because guns aren't really mm -hmm. necessary to policing. Yep. I mean, people will say, but what if someone shoots at a police officer? And I'm like, cool, someone shoots at a police officer, then, you know, they're going to get the book thrown at them and yep. the police with guns will get called in. But, yeah. you know, especially in Canada, especially um, in like domestic disturbances and when you're dealing with like lots of the regular like boring shit that I think even the police don't want to be dealing with, like, oh, great, there was a hit and run and someone damaged your car. You know, like yeah. they don't want to be there for that. Send in a con someone who's really good at being understanding, listening, de-escalating. Send that specialist in. It's significantly yeah. less training. They don't need to be licensed to carry a gun. And they can take a lot of work away from police officers that are trained to deal with more violent conflict. Exactly. Yeah. And that's part of that transitioning thing I was talking about. Not that, again, I'm an expert at all in this, but I really think that we should be transitioning by saying, like, how can we make this easier? How can we divert people from these systems the same way that restorative justice does from carceral yes. systems? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think diversion is key. The more people get caught up in the system, the worse it gets for everybody. Right. It gets more expensive for the taxpayer, and it fundamentally has the same story that we've seen played out a million times, which is worse and worse outcomes for anyone who goes in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, with, it's, the, it's a revolving door. Right. Well, with rates of recidivism, like people that leave prisons and like immediately come back in either because they haven't been rehabilitated, which fundamentally to me is a failure of the system. If someone's there for mm -hmm. 10 years and they can't be a functional member of society, what were you doing for those 10 years yeah. that led to such a yeah. failure on your part, CSC? <laughs> yeah. And, and, that's, and the thing is, is that the public will always look at the person and say, well, why didn't they help themselves? Sure. Gee, whew, I have so many problems with that argument. 
Um, because it's not the failing of the individual. Um, we have failed them as a community. I mean, that's, that's so I would, I would say that is also true. And the best way that I frame it for folks is when people are talking about religion, it's like one that I find especially juicy as an atheist, because people will talk about like, they believe in their religion because, you know, their God is the one true God. And it's like, cool. Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that God is the one true God? And it's like, oh, I have a personal relationship with this God. Cool. All right. Right. Um, And if you were born in, you know, Baghdad, do you think you'd be an evangelical Christian? Like if you were born in, you know, Beijing, do you think you'd be, I mean, you might be an evangelical Christian in either of those cities, but like, what's the probability? And like, if you start really taking it apart as to how like people hate that conversation, like with a fucking passion, because it really trivializes a lot of their most closely held beliefs. But, and, and, and I don't want to do that as an atheist, but my, my point I'm trying to communicate is how much I would be an evangelical Christian if I were just born into a family that was evangelical Christian, or how much I would be staunchly Muslim if my personality type were born into a family or a community that was staunchly Muslim. It's like the fact that I'm, you know, an atheist doesn't make me in any way smarter than anyone. If anything, it makes me, um, you know, uh, a success story of circumstance. And I don't think that's any different for how successful we are in many things. Like, yes, there is some element that is the individual. And yes, we must take personal responsibility for all of our actions. But when we're looking at the most marginalized and vulnerable people in society, it isn't serving us as a community, as a society to have the discussion or discourse in the context of blaming that person. It's certainly not going to help them. It's not going to help society. And it's fundamentally lifting our hands up in the air and saying, I don't want to help resolve this problem because I think people deserve their outcomes. Yeah. I think that in, uh, in terms of like justice and really doing right by both the victim and the offender, I think apathy is the most poisonous thing, um, Mm -hmm. that, that it, it really infects communities. Mm -hmm. Um, especially when it comes to, um, really caring for somebody who has committed an offense. Um, and I think you do need to care for somebody who has committed an offense. I mean, they're, they're a human being. Um, and often people who have committed even really serious crimes, they have trauma, they have intergenerational trauma. They have, uh, racism, um, socioeconomic issues, socioeconomic trauma, um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, things like that. And we like, we, we place all the blame on them because it was their choice. Right. Like I, that's, that's I, I can't, I can't even count how many times I've heard somebody say, oh, it was their choice to do that. Right. And it's like, well, you're not this person. Right. I mean, we, I, we have to have empathy for people. Even I saw a really great, uh, I saw a really great Ted talk from a, a lawyer. He's a prosecutor mm. who is involved in restorative justice Mm-hmm. And he said, even in people who I met who had, convi- who, who had committed murder, I saw human stories. Wow, that's that's awesome. Know these, yeah, he said, I got to know these people. I learned about their trauma. I learned about their families. I just, I, <laughs> I want a justice system who looks at that yeah. and who really cares and who really just wants to make change um, from the beginning. Uh, like he said, like, do we really want to spend money on keeping somebody in prison for 40 years 
or do we want to intervene at the earliest points in their life and make sure that that outcome never happens? Like, where do you want to invest your money? Absolutely. This is part of that. Um, and what's the saying? An, an ounce of, of prevention is worth a pound of cure or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Which also reminds me of that old, um, that old expression, there but for the grace of God go I. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very much in line with my, with my thinking. Um, yeah. In just thinking like, you know, if you were a human born into those circumstances, you might behave a little differently based on how different your personality is. But I think a lot of people overestimate the amount of autonomy they have and overestimate how much of a contribution to who they are they have personally had versus their circumstances. And perhaps to some extent, humans need to believe that. Yeah. But it doesn't make it true. Yeah. So good policy it's very hard to come by i guess is the moral of the story and we need to work on it yeah awesome well do you have any closing comments for talking about um relationships with yourself in grad school and we talked about moving we talked about colonialism we talked about imposter syndrome elitism yeah all that good Um... stuff I don't know. I would just say like, if there's anybody who is listening, who is thinking about going to grad school, um, do it, believe in yourself. You've got this and we're all in the same terrifying boat together. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me, Yana. It was a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Yeah. I honestly don't know why we don't have, um, people that literally are just there to do conflict resolution because that's their fucking job. Like so little requires you to actually use a gun. Yeah. I was told, I was literally told by a police officer, the goal of my job is to never pull my gun out of his holster. Right. Not once. And I was like, then why y'all doing it? Uh, it makes no sense to me. I mean, it makes sense because they're agents of state violence. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash Victor Salmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.